0: Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Hey, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Um, I want to see your thumbs. Let me see your thumbs. Does anybody in here have a green thumb? No? If you don't have a green thumb, put your thumbs away. If you do have a green thumb, let me see. All right? You got kind of, kind of, sort of green-ish, right? You got it, one green thumb. You got a green thumb. I didn't believe that. So here's the thing about green thumbs. Green thumbs means you can plant something and you're going you're gonna to have a harvest. You're going to get fruit, right? You know, the fact is, um, when I first moved to Gulf Breeze, I had this incredible vision of being a farmer within the city. And I really thought I was going to make it work. You see, when I was in college, I, I was on my senior year of college, I uh, decided I would, I would grow a garden, and I asked a guy in my church, hey, could I borrow some land for a garden? He had a, he had a bunch of land. He goes, yeah. He said, I'll even till, up, till it up for you. So he went out and he rode his tractor and tilled up a piece for me, and I went out and I planted some squash, and by some squash I mean... I planted like 26 mounds of squash. Now, I could have fed the, uh, the United States Marine Corps with 26 mounds of squash. I didn't realize the quantity of squash that comes from one squash plant. But as I, as I perused my garden, I thought, you know, I'm pretty good at this. And so, fast forward to Gulf Breeze, I'm thinking, No problem. So I went out, and I tilled up some land in my backyard, and uh, I even put a sprinkler in, and I planted some squash. Within a month, everything was dead. And I thought, wow, what happened? Turns out the quality of the soil makes a big difference in whether or not you can grow something. So I tried year after year after year, and after the 10th year, I finally gave up. Because the fact is... Every, it got to the point where my family was mocking me. It would be about the time to plant a garden, and they would go, oh, you're planting a garden, hey, <laughs> there goes that hundred dollars. I mean, when, when your family mocks you, it's time to hang it up. Well, my wife last year decides she wants to plant a garden, and so I'm thinking to myself, we'll see how good you are. And she did a lot better than me, but something in my backyard is a curse to gardens. I don't know what it is. But you know, the reason you plant a garden is because you want what? Fruit. You want vegetables. You want something produced for the effort and the energy that you place into a garden. The parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 13 has to do with fruit. And so in Luke chapter 13, uh, look at verse 6. Jesus tells this parable. Now remember, a parable is a story that has a biblical meaning to it or, or it has a point to it. This is not an allegory. The difference between an allegory and a parable, an allegory means that you assign different, like, like by saying uh, fruit, I'm really meaning this. And by saying king, I'm really meaning this. This is not an allegory. It's just a simple story, and there's a simple point. Here's the story. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in a vineyard He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, Listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, Sir, leave it for a year also, or leave it this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, but if not, you can cut it down. So Jesus tells the story of a fig tree. But there's a reason he tells the story. He's telling the story to help make a point that he's trying to make in the verses before it. So go just before it. We're going to get to the parable in a minute, but let's set up the context. Verse 1. At that time, some people came and reported to, to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also perish as well. Or those 18 of the Tower of Siloam, when they fell on them and killed them, do you think they were more sinful than the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish as well. And then he told the parable. So so what's going on here? You had these religious folks who came to Jesus and they said, Did you know that the Galileans... Uh, were killed by Pilate, and, and he mixed their blood with the sacrifices. What they were saying was, that they were revealing that their theology believed that the worst things that happened in your life wasn't, was a result of how bad you really were. So their theology said, the worse of a sinner you are, the worse of a life you'll live. It's really answering the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But it's going about it the wrong way. Their 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 theology was wrong. They thought that the closer you were with God, the easier your life would be. They thought that um, if you if you did the religious things, then your life would be just a piece of cake. And the more religious you were, the easier it was, the better off you were with God. And Jesus, on both occasions, actually, one of the stories he responded to, the other story, he actually brought up. Both occasions he said no. You too must repent, and unless you do, you won't see the kingdom. So what's going on here? There was a belief that if you were a Galilean, you didn't really know God as much because you were far from Jerusalem. If you lived in Jerusalem, you were closer to the temple, and therefore you were closer to God. And if you were religious, if you followed all the Jewish practices, then you were even closer to God. And those who called themselves Pharisees believed that they were as righteous as they could possibly be. And Jesus essentially said this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Think about that. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. That means that your sinfulness is equal to the sinfulness of the person next to you. Let me say it differently. Your guilt of sin is equal to the person's guilt of sin next to you. And see, that's a real problem for us sometimes because we don't ever say it out loud, but do not we think, do we not think sometimes that because we have a certain status or a certain, um, a, a, a certain uh, position and, and even across the, the ages it's been all about, um, uh, it, it, it's just you use every classification possible to, to determine who's good and who's not, or who's righteous and who's not. And Jesus is saying, no, no, it has nothing to do with your race. It has nothing to do with your economics. It has nothing to do with your family. A person is lost in sin without Christ. And it, we're all on level footing at the foot of the cross. Does that make sense to you? Here's why that's important. Because they were following a theology that was wrong." And because their theology was wrong, they were coming to the wrong conclusions about life. Now, the truth is, all of us have some wrong theology. I do too. All of us are still trying to figure out the mystery of the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not necessarily all of our theology is wrong, but the more mature you get in your faith, the more clearly you see the gospel and the more clearly the mystery of the gospel is made known. That just makes sense, right? For instance, if you uh, are a mechanic, your first day on the job, you know less than your 30th year on the job. At least it should be that way, right? Because the more jobs you do, the faster you can diagnose, the faster you can fix, the more wise you are, and hopefully the more expensive you become because you can fix it in 30 minutes as opposed to a beginner taking five hours. As a believer, that's the same way with our faith. We come to know Christ, but we don't know nothing. All we know is what we think we know, and all that we know is what we've heard in the past. But the moment we come to know Christ, God begins to transform us. He begins to shape us, and He begins to mature us so that the end result of your life and my life should be that when we look in the mirror, we are like Jesus. That's the end result of your faith and mine, if we are following Christ. Discipleship essentially is... Uh, 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 pursuing the character and nature of God. Process that for just a moment. To be like Christ means that you possess the character and the nature of God. Why? Because Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. If you want to see the Father, look at me. And so what is God like? God is just like Jesus. So what are you supposed to be like? You are supposed to be just like Jesus. Don't misunderstand. You're not supposed to be Jesus. You're supposed to be like Jesus, right? You will never be the son of God. I'll never be the son of God. There's only one of them. But what we should do is we should reflect the character and nature of God just like Jesus did. But how that happens is through the process of God sanctifying us and building us into the man or woman that he's called us to be, okay? So, in this story, there are a couple of things that happen. Just just to make clear sense of it, the people came and said, hey, the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices, we know very little about this story. There's a little bit of external biblical writing that, that describes it, but basically, there are some Galileans, and Galilee's up here, and you've got Jerusalem down here, but there were some Galileans visiting Jerusalem, and they were in the, uh, the temple area, and Pilate was, the, was, was in charge. He was ruling the area, and he, he, he sensed a rebellion in the people, and so he was going to quelch it. He was going to squash it, but they, they were too powerful for him, so he backed off. And then it appears that he came back later and sent some soldiers into the temple mound and, and killed some people. And that's what they're talking about. Hey, their blood was mixed with the sacrifices. The thought was, they must have done something wrong. That's why that happened. They must be worse sinners than the rest of the worshipers. See, that's bad theology. That bad theology led to a bad conclusion. Jesus said, nope, unless you repent, just like they had to repent, you won't be right before God. And then Jesus brought up the story about the Tower of Salome that fell on 18 people. Why? Because again, he was trying to dig out of them this bad theology. Their theology said, "If I'm from Galilee, I'm farther from the temple, so I'm farther from God. If I live in Jerusalem, I'm closer to the temple, so I'm closer to God, I'm more religious." And Jesus said, "What about the people who were in Jerusalem? The, the, the tower fell. We don't really know anything about this story at all, except Jesus told it. The tower fell, killed 18 of them. They're exactly like the Galileans. Your theology's wrong. Let me tell you a story to make sense of it. See, that's how this transpired here. Then he goes into the parable. And he says, a man had a fig tree that was planted in a vineyard. Notice how it says, the man had a fig tree. Now, fig trees should grow to be 20, 25 foot tall. They produce figs and they also produce shade. So it's very useful. And notice that the fig tree was planted. It just didn't out of nowhere come. What that tells me is that God is responsible for planting the fig tree. You know that your salvation, if you know Christ, you didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'll be a Christian today. God was pursuing you. The Bible tells us that no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. The, uh, Jesus is talking to his father, and he says, Father, the ones that you gave me, God is at work inside of our lives. Now, look, there's, there's questions about uh, whether or not you have to respond to the gospel or whether or not you can't respond because uh, questions of whether or not you cannot not respond. Those are important questions, but what we do know for certain is that God is at work in drawing people to himself. If you're born again, if you know Christ... It's not because you earned it or deserved it. It's because God drew you to himself. Amen? And my favorite story about this is going to the donut store. If you've heard this story, I want to tell it again, so just pretend you haven't heard it. But it illustrates it. When I go to the donut store, I never, ever, ever say, give me a donut. Never. I choose my donut very carefully. So I look through the case, and I'm thinking, okay, which one is biggest? Which one has the most, most substance? Which one has the perfect blend of donut and, and topping? And I say to them, I want that one. And so they're like, you want that one? No, 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 this way. It is, it's, like I'm, it's like I'm controlling their hand, right? And when they finally get to the one, I'm like, that's the one I want. They grab it. That is what God has done with you. He has chosen you. He has chosen you. The Bible tells us you are chosen, you are holy, and you are dearly loved. That is something special. Turn to the person next to you and say, man, that's something special. It is. Imagine to be, what, is it, what, it, what it means to be chosen by God. Now, I want you to ask yourself this question. Why would God choose you? What is it about you that would make him choose you? Now, if, if you see yourself too highly, you'll say, well, because I'm a good speaker, or because I'm a good friend, or because I'm a good singer, or because I'm a good thinker, or because I'm a good administrator, or because I'm a good servant. But none of those are true. Now, you might be good at those things, but you're not good at those things because of you. You're good at those things because God placed them in you. God chose you, listen, in spite of you. He chose you in spite of you. Why? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The Bible says in Romans that we are enemies of God. And so God didn't have to, but he chose you. He called your name, and and, and he brought you into his family. And so this man planted a, the owner of the vineyard planted a tree, but he was expecting something from the tree. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, the end game is for you to bear fruit. If you're a tree that doesn't bear fruit, if you're a a professing Christian and there's no fruit in your life, you are in dangerous ground, because what it probably means is that you're really not a born again. Why? Because a tree is known by its fruit. A good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. An orange tree bears oranges, a pear tree bears pears, and a fig tree bears figs. If there's no fruit in your life, you need to examine your own salvation. If you don't look more like Jesus today than you did 10 years ago, folks, there's something wrong. That's not a condemnation. That's what the Bible's saying. Because in the parable, Jesus said that this man had a fig tree and he found no fruit. And so he told the vineyard worker, hey, go cut the tree down because it's wasting space. That's pretty harsh, don't you think? Well, does not the owner of the vineyard get to determine what's planted in his own vineyard? Does not he get the right to determine what is fruitful and what is not? And after all, the only thing required for that tree to be allowed to just stay there is fruit. In other words, the tree has to do what the tree was made to do in order for the tree to occupy space. In your life and in my life, we should constantly be examining, am I looking more like Jesus today than I did yesterday? Now, the thing about fruit, so uh, we had a tree that that was headed to the dump. Uh, It was out here, um, because when we redid the the, uh, courtyard here, all that vegetation had to go somewhere, and I tried to give the tree to a couple different people. Nobody wanted it, and so we threw it on the trailer to take and throw away. It's a I don't even know what kind of tree it is. It's some fruit tree. It's like an orange or something. And um, before I hauled it to the dump, I said, you know what? What's it going to hurt if I dig a hole and stick it in my backyard? I mean, it's just going to die anyway, so I might as well let it die in my backyard as well as the dump. So I took it to the house. I dug a hole, and I put it in the ground, and I, buried, and I put the dirt up, and I put some water on it. It was a Poor, sickly-looking tree. It looked like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, you know, like a couple of twigs. I mean, it was rough, right? But I thought, why not? And I had no idea what was going to happen with it, but I at least wanted to give it a fighting chance. And after a couple of months, there was zero growth. So I thought to myself, I might as well rip this thing out of the ground and just go chunk it, because it's just taking up space. But I said, no, I'll just... Actually, I was just lazy. I didn't want to do it. And, and so one day I went out and I noticed that there were these green little sprigs coming off it. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. Today, this thing's got green all around it. It has not borne fruit yet. So it's still a fruitless tree, but it's different from when I planted it. So here's the point. Fruit in your life does not necessarily mean that you're born again, you trust God, poof, you got fruit. Right? There is a time and there is a patience and there is a process of fruit coming to fruition. She's I feel like that should be fruition. That that would make more sense, wouldn't it? But but there's a process, so even though I don't have something I can tick and eat, I can see the transformation and I can see the growth. In your life, you might be tempted to be frustrated because you don't see the abundant fruit that you want to see, but ask yourself the question, when I look in the mirror, do I look more like Jesus than I did yesterday? If you do, then you are heading towards fruit. And also with the tree, the first year that it bears fruit doesn't usually bear a ton of fruit. It's usually kind of sparse, or at least so I'm told. And, 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 it, and it takes this process of the, the tree maturing. And what it's doing is it's, doing its, its, its growing its roots more deep. It's, it's getting the, the, the necessary nutrients it needs. And if you keep nurturing that tree, eventually it is going to produce abundant fruit. So much fruit that you won't even know what to do with it. It will surprise you. God's purpose in your life and in mine is that we don't just bear fruit, but that we we bear much fruit. If you're under the age of 25, can I just encourage you, you might be tempted to think that that if you don't produce these awesome, God-inspired, God-moved fruitfulness in your life like right away, then, man, I just missed it. Because I had always heard that, that God does great things through young people. And he does. But do you know what? If you look at the trajectory of history, a person's most fruitful time in life is between 55 and 70. Did you know that? 55 and 70. If you are 20 years old, you've got 35 years left to grow before you probably will see the most fruitful time of your life. That's amazing. The question is, what are you going to do in those 35 years? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because there is a, there is a necessary um, process if we want to bear much fruit. The vineyard worker looks at the owner and says, Listen, how about we give it another year? See, there's that time. How about we give it one more year, and in that year, I'm going to dig a trench around it, and I'm going to put manure into the trench. And after a year, if there's no fruit, we can cut it down. But let's be patient. Let's let let the the manure work its way. It says fertilizer, but literally that is manure. That is what fertilizer is. So, here's a question. What is the manure in your life? That'd make a great shirt, wouldn't it? What's the manure in your life that that produces the nutrients to bear fruit? Now, first off, nobody likes to mess with manure, right? It's nasty, it's smelly, it's dirt. I mean, nobody's like, you know what, I just want to go play in it today. No, it's necessary, it's required. The manure in your life, I could say, is two things. It's the challenges, and it's the opportunities. Y'all go, oh, that's good. Come on, do it, do it, do it. Oh, shocking, Right? It's true, though, isn't it? The the, the fertilizer in your life that produces fruit, it's the challenges, it's the struggles, it's the trials, and it's the opportunities. That's it. The successes are not the fertilizer. You don't learn a whole lot by success. In fact, success oftentimes has the opposite. A lot of times with success, we're like, whew, look at me. We are the champions. I mean, it just makes you want to sing a a song by Queen, right? I mean, it's just, okay, nobody thought that was funny but me. The the challenges and the opportunities are there for God to really get into the guts of who you are and shape you and form you and transform you so that you will bear fruit. Let me show it to you. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James chapter 1 begins by saying, verse 2, consider it great joy. You might have an NIV or another version that says, consider it pure joy. Consider it great joy. My brothers and sisters, so he's talking to believers Whenever you experience various trials. Now, I don't know about you, but my first response, my natural response to various trials is not great joy. Like, man, I'm having a hard life. Woohoo! Give me a high five, right? Nobody thinks that way. Why? Because trials and struggles and, and, and difficulties produce pain. And all of us are averse to pain. We hate pain. We try to avoid pain at all costs. What we want is comfort. We want safety. We want security. We want guarantee. But Jesus said through James chapter 1 consider it pure, great joy. We're supposed to lift up our hands and say, God, thank you. Thank you for this trial. Now, I know what you're saying. You're like, you don't know the depth of pain that I've been through. And to that I would say, I've been through some pretty deep pain. I don't know exactly what you've been through, but I know that my own pain was was pain enough. And my first response was not to celebrate and have joy, but as I look back in it, I can always see the hand of God. Why should we consider pain and trials and difficulties great joy? Well, because the Word tells us, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. When your faith is tested, and it's tested by tribulation and trial and discomfort and pain, when it's tested, it gives you endurance. It gives you the ability to say, you know what? What I've got is real. This is not something I heard about somebody else having. This is mine. I can say I know that my Redeemer lives because because I'm living in the midst of such awful times and yet I still see Him clearly. You know, if you're like me, you don't like physical pain. Like the older I get, the more comfort I want. I'll just be honest. I used to tent camp. Now tent camping is from the devil, right? If I can't plug it in and turn it to 70 degrees, I don't want to go, right? And it's the same way with working out for me. So I got in this workout kick, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to start working out. And I've done this all my life. I'd go in, I'd do like one rep, and I'm like, whew, that was rough. That was good, okay, right? Because, you know, when I was lifting weights, like it burned my arms, and it made me not be able to breathe anymore. And I'm like, well, this is no fun. This is pain. But, you know, finally, about three months ago, for the first time in my life, I stuck it out. Literally, for the first time in my life, I stuck it out. I was determined that I was going to lift weights and do it more than twice. That's about my record. Two days, I'm done, right? All of my life. So I started, and it was awful. I was like, ugh, kill me. This is horrible. But after the first week, I noticed I was standing up a little straighter. And (laughs) I shouldn't tell you this, but you know you would do it too. I'd walk by the mirror, and I'd go, Hey, <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Have you ever seen anybody who starts and like they're noticing these little teeny, am I right? Tell me I'm right, right? And so, so you walk a little slower by the mirror. You're like, I'm not really acknowledging that I'm looking at it, right? And then you walk around with your shirt off every now and then. And if you really get ripped, you have no shirt on ever. There are some people in this room who like to do that. I won't, I won't name who they are, but you all know him. Hey, if you got it, wear it, right? But the thing is, you don't get ripped without pain. You don't get ripped. You know what I'm talking about, ripped, right? I am not ripped. I know that. You don't have to remind me. You don't get ripped, though, without sticking to it. And when you stick to it, that produces an endurance. And here's the funny thing. You actually start looking forward to the pain because The reward is greater than the pain. In your life, consider it pure joy when you face trials and tribulations of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then the endurance is for a purpose. The endurance is so that you may be mature. (sighs) Mature. It means you're no longer a baby. That means you're no longer whiny. That means you're no longer tossed by the wind. That means you no longer have to ask, oh, does God love me? I did something wrong today. That means that you're no longer, no longer uh, uh, nervous about, about feelings. You, you're, there's, a, there's a steadfastness and a maturity so that you are mature and complete. You're the whole package. Now, listen. Sometimes people think that they're not ever going to be complete, and that's wrong. We will always be striving to look like Jesus, and as long as we have the flesh, we will always be battling between being holy, uh, uh, living holy and righteous and not. That will always be a struggle. But the longer you know Jesus, the more mature and the more complete you are, so that you So Elizabeth Elliot said it this way. Actually, she just wrote what her husband, Jim Elliot, said. If you know Jim Elliot, he was a missionary to Ecuador. Him and five other guys gave their lives to uh, share the gospel with a cannibalistic, uh, maybe not cannibalist, but with a brutal tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. Jim Elliot said this, and his wife recorded it. He said, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. Think about that a minute. In other words, don't leave anything on the field. Don't die having something left in the tank. Be fully surrendered to the gospel. Be fully in, walking towards Jesus so that when it's your time to die, you can say to the Father, God, I've done the work you've told me to do. I've done everything you've told me to do. There's nothing left for me to do except for enter into your presence. Does that make sense? All right, so James 1. Look at what 1 Peter tells us. If you're not convinced yet, let me give you a few more verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says this. Same theme. You rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Right? So you are to rejoice so that even... Uh, if it's necessary, you will suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire. See, he just said what I just said. That even though you have faith, it's constantly being refined, it's constantly being proved. More valuable may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what God is doing is you, is He is maturing you and He is perfecting you to bring you to completeness so that your life is lived for exactly what you have been put on this earth to do so that you bear much fruit, right? All right, so go now to 1 Corinthians. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. Now, I like the way it says this. I use this text when I do funerals sometimes because it says our light and temporary or our light and momentary. Now, if you've gone through a trial, rarely will you say, oh, that's light. If you go through the death of a family member or a close friend or if you go through some really hard, difficult time, very rarely will you go, oh, that's Nothing. That's simple, that's, that's light, that's momentary. It's not making light of the situation, it's calling you to the 30,000 foot view. It's saying gain some perspective and realize that what you're dealing with looks like the end of the world and the worst possible thing, but in this realm of eternity, it's very small and it's momentary. If you've ever lost someone, then you know this to be true. The more time goes by... It doesn't make the pain go away, but, but, but there's some sort of growth and there's some sort of maturing and there's some sort of um, understanding the longer, excuse me, if you grieve properly. If you go through grieving, that's what happens. You, does that make sense? You don't ever forget them, but, it, but it's you can live your life and you, you, you continue on. The light and momentary trial is is not just a perspective, but it's also a recognition that you're not dealing with it alone. You know, when the Bible says that Jesus said, take my yoke upon me, or take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for my load is easy and my burden is light. What he was saying was this. When you're in the thick of it, when you're dealing with these trials, he's saying, get inside the yoke with him. Because a yoke is built for two oxen. And typically, they would take a old, mature, well-seasoned oxen and they would put it next to a young, immature, new oxen. They would put them under the same yoke and the old oxen would be doing most all of the heavy lifting. The younger one had the yoke on but he was learning how to do it, right? What Jesus was saying to you is this. He's saying, look, my yoke is easy. In other words, it's easier for you because I'm carrying the weight, my burden, your burden is light because I'm carrying all of, the, all of the, the weight of it. So you're in the midst of it, but I'm really doing all of the work because you're trusting in me, but we're linked together. Amen? The light and momentary trials are because if you're trusting Jesus, he's doing most of the work, and the weight is on his shoulders. Here's what they do. So we do not, or here's what happens. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Part of the, the fertilizing in your life from the trials is for you to get your eyes off the present and put your eyes on the eternal. The older I get, the more hope I have for eternity. The more suffering I see, the more I long to be in the Savior's presence. Isn't that true? The more, the more chaos in the world I see, the more I realize, you know what, Jesus is one day going to make all things right the more, I, uh, the more I don't know, the more, or the more certain of, of the, the things that I do know. I know what Jesus said, and therefore I'm going to hold on to that. Let me give you one more, can I? So in, Thank you. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. It says, not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that the affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces Proven character, and proven character produces hope. Ah, there it is. Uh, a friend of mine named um, Lanny. I'll never forget. I was in college. Uh, I just graduated college. I was serving a church in Tennessee. It's a youth pastor there. And she, Lana actually, Lana Berry. She uh, was Praying with me and I think Shannon and then a couple of other people. We'd meet every Sunday morning to pray. And Lana always prayed for her husband. Always. Never failed. And then she came in one Sunday. She said, it happened. He trusted Jesus last night. We were like, yeah. Woo, we've been praying for a year for this guy to know Christ. I mean, he was in bad uh, he just He was totally against Christ. Something happened. He trusted Christ, and we were like, this is awesome. Can't wait to see what God does. Within like a couple of months, she said, hey, my husband died last night. She went, we went from this celebration of him being born again to now he's dead. And I was confused. I was thinking, man, this, how, why would God do this? What's up with this? But I noticed Lana's response. She had this calmness and this stillness about her that was confusing to me. And what it was, was this. What she wanted more than anything else was for her husband to know Jesus. Once he knew Jesus, she had hope. So in the midst of his death, that death could not squash the hope that she had. Does that make sense? And what it reminded me of, or what it taught me, is that in the midst of the darkest days, never forget that it is a light and momentary trial. And what's going on produces hope if we have our eyes fixed on the right thing. If I'm looking at this situation, I'm going to be discouraged. If I'm looking at Jesus, I'm going to have hope. And so. Proven character produces hope, and this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So that's the, that's the crisis or the, the challenges that are the fertilizer to fruit. What about the opportunities? Well, if you go from Genesis to Revelation, you will hear the story or you will see the stories of men and women who hear the voice of God and they obey his voice. God says, I've got a job for you. And the person says, but I've never done that before. I've never been that way before. I don't know which way I'm supposed to go. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know when I'm going to do it. But if you say to do it, I'll do it. And it's through the process of obedience to those opportunities that God refines that person into the man or woman That God has called them to be. So in your life. You are going to face manure. Because God loves you. He's digging a trench. Right now. And he's putting around that tree. Of your life. Into that trench. Both challenges. And opportunities. If you will. Trust him. In both of those. I promise you. Because God's word promises you. You will be fruitful. Amen? How many of you would like to die, not now, and stand before God and say, God, the only thing I had left to do was die. There was nothing else that I needed to do in life. I did everything that you sent me to do. How many of you would like to be able to say that? That is going to require You actively pursuing the character and nature of God. It's a heck of a ride. Amen? So be patient. Don't be in a hurry. You do know that uh, Moses stayed 40 years in the wilderness before he could lead the people out out of bondage, right? All throughout Scripture, this time in the wilderness, this time that seems to be wasted is not wasted time. God is preparing you for your purpose and your plan. So you have a season and you have an assignment, but that's a whole other sermon. This morning I want to ask you, have you trusted Christ Jesus? You know, King uh, was watching a, a, a video of a woman being baptized and her hairpiece came off. And she was, woohoo! right? And God used that video to spark a conversation about knowing Jesus and following in believers' baptism. Can I tell you that what Jesus said to the people in Luke 13 is exactly what he says to you and to me. Unless you repent, you cannot see the kingdom. To repent means to say, God, I am lost. I'm not good enough to be made right with you. And so I turn from myself. I turn from my sin, and I turn to you. That's an act of faith. That's an act of trust. And you want to know the prayer that you need to pray? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's your prayer. That, that prayer is, is the simplest, most basic cry out to God that you could possibly have. There's a recognition of sin and there's a recognition that he's the only way. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you want to say some other things, God, save me, make me child. You can say that too. But he's reading the heart. That's what he's doing. He's reading the heart. So this morning, if you need to trust Christ, can I invite you to do that right now? Why would you wait one second longer? This morning, if you're in a challenge or if you're in an opportunity, would you just rise above that and start to see it for what it really is? God is fertilizing you; He's building you because He loves you. The Bible says He disciplines those He loves, just like He does with, just like a father, a good father would do with his children. So don't push against it; receive it and let God do what He wants to do. We you close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment? Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness. I do pray that you would take your word and let it grow inside of our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be, um, to be able to see what's going on in our life with a, with a holy perspective, with a God perspective. Lord, the, the, the things that we're facing that are a result of sin, God, may we repent and deal with that. But Lord, the things that we're facing that are a result of you growing us, Help us to recognize that as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Uh, we're going to sing uh, uh, a song, and as we sing, this is a chance for you to respond. Maybe you just need to close your eyes and pray. Maybe you need to come up here and pray. Maybe you want to talk to me. Uh, just respond as he would lead you to do that. Then we'll close the service today.